come back again Judge the living and the dead Usher in the age to come Let everyone sing Amen Let everyone sing Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we are going to tackle two lines of the creed that are, uh, well, they get controversial real quick. So we're going to have to narrow in on what we talk about and how we talk about it. So first, we're going to be talking about, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin. So when we talk about one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we begin uh, by noting that this is a confession of the community of faith. We believe this is the community of faith recognizing that there is one body of Christ, one church of Christ. And this church is categorized by the adjective of holy. Uh, Christian writers use this description of the church quite a bit. The church has consistently been defined as holy and this is built upon the reality that Jesus is the center of the community who are set apart to worship and lift up God in worship. The church is considered a temple of God, and because of that, the church is to be holy and unique and different from the world theologically and ethically. The movement from baptism to partaking in the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion, all three terms are appropriate. We shouldn't shy away from the term Eucharist. Uh, whichever term you choose, this movement from baptism to communion is an act of partaking in this community of faith, an underlining indication of one's position in holy community, being given life via the work of the Holy Spirit, as we live as one's called to theological and moral purity. Uh, this is why, historically, the church has confessed that a true church is one that practices the supper and baptism. Uh, that's why ordinances or sacraments are so important. I know that sacrament is another word that's kind of loaded for Protestants. And so this is one of those things we, we need to stop being so shy about particular terms, but ultimately we are called to live in theological and moral purity and partake as a community that is holy and consecrated to God's purposes. So this confession was of great concern in the early church for proper living in the Christian life and understanding one's position within that community. And you see this in particular when it comes to baptism, and we'll talk about that again later. Now, when it comes to the term Catholic, that's, this is, again, another term that Protestants knee-jerk away from. But we really just need to recognize that the term means universal and that uh, the Reformers use it, uh, many theologians still use it, and we shouldn't shy away from it. Now, there is a distinction that could be made between capital Catholic and little c Catholic in regards to the theological tradition of Catholicism, but ultimately, uh, Protestant churches have consistently utilized this term as a designation for the universal body of believers in Christ. And this term was used by early Christians to distinguish themselves from heretics who would appear under various names and schisms. Uh, and in the church there was an affirmation of the one holy Catholic church, meaning a church undivided that finds its root in Jesus Christ 
and finds one's mission in achieving the unity presented by Christ in Paul. Um, all members are united to Christ's body and are united together. We, we all uh, recognize this fairly easily in the text. And just as well, historically, we do find that the Episcopal form of government developed very quickly, leading to the early church being governed by a bishop who had relations with other bishops, and each one had their own territory, as bishop became a term uh, to designate the head presbyter or elder in a local congregation. Initially, it was that these terms were interchangeably, and then they became more specific in their designation. So a bishop in a congregational setting, for example, would be the head pastor, so to speak, while the presbyter and elders would be the, well, elders. So you can debate ecclesiology till the cows come home. The reason why I mention this designation of bishop in this way is because it ties into apostolic, and we'll get into that here in a second. But ultimately, the bishop was to work with the presbyters or the elders and the deacons for the benefit of the congregations and would oversee who would be allowed to partake in baptism and the table. They basically ran uh, services and kept things in order. Now, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Apostolic, of course, refers directly to the apostles of Christ, who were, as Paul put it in Ephesians, the foundation of the church. They were the ones who were legitimate to transmit the gospel and faith in the sea of various Gnostics who were claiming secret knowledge of the truth. Of course, even the Gnostics would appeal to having succession of the apostles. Um, everyone did. That was kind of an appeal to authority. And it's really no different than today. You see that with Arians and modalists today who claim the same thing, that they believe what the apostles taught, not what was corrupted by Constantine in 325, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this really, uh, the church in this context developed the notion of apostolic succession. Uh, that is that there was a list of churches established by the apostles and the seat of those apostles were passed down to the bishop and those churches could be traced back to the apostles. Therefore, they could uh, validate their claim to having an apostolic tradition, right? Um, and you find lists of elders who inherited churches founded by the apostles. But essentially, it was an appeal to authority in the midst of a sea of heresies and schisms. And while this appeal was beneficial and safeguarded the church in the midst of the, the secret knowledge of Gnostics and the claims of apostolic authority, ultimately, uh, this would crumble with the politicalization of bishops. And you see this in particular with what we talked about previously with 1054, where one bishop decided that he was head over all the bishops. And of course, there's still debates about which church has the true apostolic churches and everything else. Ultimately, this appeal crumbled in both the sense of literally losing its weight, but also no longer necessary given the state of canonization. Uh, instead of appealing to a church founded by the apostles, we can look to the claims of the apostolic church directly and appeal directly to the written documents of the apostles themselves while recognizing that the church did well to preserve and more pr precisely articulate the faith in 381. We can affirm the good that this system um, had in its context, but ultimately we find that we have a better standard, which are the written documents of the apostles. So 
Ultimately, the confession of one holy Catholic and apostolic church is a confession of believing in the present unity of the universal body and the historical unity presented by the apostles through the ecumenical councils. And that's why I think that the schism of 1054 is very significant. So our application here um, of this section is difficult to apply because we get often caught up in discussions and debates and schisms um, as Protestants over secondary matters. Uh, we, we look very foolish a lot of the times by Catholics and Orthodox believers. Uh, we, we are looked down upon by them. Uh, of course, this is odd because Catholic and Orthodox believers will do this, yet they diverge greatly in terms of their unity both with each other and within themselves. You'll, you'll notice that ultimately their appeal to authority is their own tradition and body, which to me, um, as an outsider, says that if you're going to critique us and appeal to your authority, then you and the other major Christian authority need to duke it out and decide which one's correct because of the identical claims of both sides. And I think that there's, there's good debate to be had there, to say the least, um, and then not to mention the, the infiltration of the dichotomy between conservative Catholics and liberal Catholics and conservative Orthodox and liberal Orthodox. But regardless of what's, what is disheartening is this idea that um, we do not have apostolic authority as Protestants. We do not have the apostolic church. Apostolic, first and foremost, means the apostles. And one thing that Eastern Orthodox and Catholics have consistently said about Protestants that they respect is our desire to know, examine, and weigh the scriptures, the writings of the apostles. Um, so this, this claim that we don't have the apostolic church because we don't hold to their particular tradition, which differs from the other particular tradition, is a little strange. Now with that, um, I think that so long as we hold to apostolic succession in terms of preserving the gospel itself and Trinitarian formulations, then, then we're solid. Instead of moving it to this idea of later innovation, such as the doctrine of iconography and the dogmas of Rome on Mary, and so ultimately, the apostolic faith, I would contend, is found in Holy Scripture and fleshed out by the confession of Constantinople. I do not believe that the Creed of 381 contradicts apostolic teaching. So we as Protestants can say we believe in one holy Catholic body of Christ and the apostolic church. And of course, to be fair, it is true that many evangelicals have fallen into the pit of solo scriptura, not sola scriptura, and will deny uh, the creeds confessed by ecumenical councils, which that is on us. While every tradition has their problems, however, Protestants are not claiming to be the one true tradition. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some who claim that, but they are not considered the vicar of Christ, right? The seat of Rome. And that's, that's a crucial distinction. 
is that while Protestants have their debates and discussions, we aren't claiming to have infallible divine interpretation of scriptures and disagreeing with other major traditions on that basis. Some of the heretics do, like the Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim a tradition similar to Roman Catholicism, where the means of interpretation is divine, illumination, and revelation, and only their interpretation is correct because of that. So what is my point? Well, my point is that if I'm talking to a Catholic, very often they'll point out Martin Luther did X, Y, and Z. And all I can really respond to that is Martin Luther isn't my Pope. He isn't claiming to be the vicar of Christ. That's not how things work in Protestantism. And you can say that makes us rogue. Um, you can say that we have no bishop, as an Eastern Orthodox fellow told me. But I do have a bishop. According to the congregational model, he is my head pastor. Um, and so we can debate all that till the cows come home. And the point being is that every tradition has their problems. And Protestants disagree with the developments in Catholicism, and some of them in Orthodoxy, not all of them. Orthodoxy is much more respectable in my own personal opinion. But we also believe in a more static understanding of apostolic succession, and ultimately the apostolic truth is found in the apostolic documents, meaning the scriptures. Now we can debate the Old Testament Apocrypha until the cows come home, but we all agree on the 27 letters of the New Testament. If we want to talk about apostolic church, we appeal to the apostolic church. And to the flip side of that, Protestants need to do better about recognizing what the church agreed on ecumenically in these creeds. And ultimately, we recognize that we cannot just throw away the ancient church. And at the same time, Rome and Orthodox or Catholicism and Orthodox churches do not have a monopoly on the early church. You, you can dislike Protestants all you want. We still have our roots down to the apostles and through the Western tradition. And there's many places where we disagree with the Western tradition of Catholicism or the Eastern Orthodox do. There's, there's, there's points where we can agree. Anyway, so that's really where I'm going to end that. Uh, ultimately, I would say again that the apostolic faith is that found in the scriptures, fleshed out through the ecumenical creeds before the Great Schism. And we can say that we believe in one holy universal body of Christ and the apostolic church in that sense. Now, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This is going to be the longer section of the two. And let's just jump right in. One of the earliest documents, aside from the New Testament, on baptism is the Didache. Uh, the Didache is usually dated to the 2nd century. It was a handbook known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it focuses just on that, the teachings. Uh, and there are three sections. A section on the way of life and the way of death. A section on church practice and order. And then three, it's an um, apocalyptic section. The first section is a basic summary of Christian life that was to be taught to those who were preparing for baptism and church membership. The second part deals with instructions about food, baptism, fasting, prayer, uh, the Eucharist, and other issues. And the last section parallels Mark 13, Matthew 24, 25, and so on. So regarding baptism, we read 
Concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things with those who are about to be baptized, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water, that is a river of cold water. But if you have no running water, then baptize into some other water. And if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm water, like a warm lake. But if you have neither, then pour water upon the head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. Also, you must instruct the one who is to be baptized to fast for one to two days beforehand. So we see the trying formula, uh, immersion unless there is no other option, and standards for those who were to be baptized. Um, this manual includes no instructions for infant baptism, and uh, there won't be... Uh, any instructions in liturgies or in church orders until the 4th and 5th centuries. Justin Martyr, in his work First Apology, uh, from the middle to the second century, explained baptism is to be done in the triune name and was to be given to those who had been persuaded and believed in what we teach and say is true and who undertake to live accordingly. So like the Didache, Justin stated that the candidate was to fast before baptism and pray before baptism, and repentance was linked very closely to baptism, uh, and so the church was consistent on this point. Justin says that in the baptism of water, there is the reception of the forgiveness of sins. At our birth, we were born without our knowledge or choice in order that we may become children of choice and knowledge and may obtain in the water the forgiveness of sins previously committed. Uh, there is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins the name of God the Father, and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there's clearly um, a sense of baptismal regeneration in the waters where one chooses to be born again. Um, in a second century document, the Apology of Aristides, I think is how you say it, we see an important passage that describes the Christian behavior as superior to others in relation to the empire. It notes that Christians were to be persuaded to become Christians themselves, and then after such, uh, they could be baptized. And after servants and children's became Christians and were persuaded, they could be called brothers and sisters without distinction. Um, so those who became Christians were considered part of the faith only. Barnabas, not the one in Scripture, but one of the second century, said, Blessed are those who, having set their hope on the cross, descended into the water. While we descended into the water laden with sin and dirt, we rise up bearing fruit in our heart and with fear and hope in Jesus in our spirits. And so there's a sense in which the remissions of sins is closely tied to the water in this particular document. And of course, we know that we were talking about the Creed of 381, which says, I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So regeneration was expressed closely linked to baptism, either explicitly or implicitly. Um, Origen referred to baptism as the bath of regeneration and appealed to Titus 3.5, as well as John 3.5. Irenaeus states, For as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean from our old sins by the means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord. We are spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, just as the Lord has declared in John 3.5. You can kind of see how they viewed John 3.5 at that point. John 3.5 was significant for Tertullian as well, where he states that the precept is laid down that without baptism, salvation is attainable by no one. The gift of the Holy Spirit was also closely linked to baptism, but Tertullian says we don't receive the Holy Spirit in the water. Rather, in the water, we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. After this, when we have come from the baptismal font, we are thoroughly anointed with the blessing 
uh, which is interesting. Uh, he says, next, the hand is laid upon us, invoking and inviting the Holy Spirit through benediction to our body as it emerges from the font after its old sins, flies the dove of the Holy Spirit, bringing us the peace of God. So Tertullian makes this dichotomy between being clean in the water and then receiving the Holy Spirit, which is, I don't know, just kind of interesting to me. So there were some things as well, such as the view of baptism being a break from Satan and identification with Jesus. Uh, the view was really multifaceted. Um, at the third century and the fourth century, we see this idea of the water being set apart or consecrated for the activity of baptism. And Basil the Great, one of the Cappadocians, right, stressed that baptism is not magical, but baptism was the work of the Spirit. Um, anointing with oil also became common by Basil's time. One who was interested in being baptized would have to learn Christian teaching prior to baptism, and they would be expected to abandon their formal sinful life and would be held to a high standard of morality post-baptism. Uh, the normal length of the baptismal process would be about three years. Hippolytus in the you know, second to third century says, if a person is earnest and perseveres well in the matter, he shall be received earlier because it is not the time that is judged, but the conduct. So basically there was an ethical and theological um, disposition that would ultimately lead one to being baptized. When the creeds were memorized, they would make a public confession of the creed, and then they would be baptized, and usually this baptism would occur on Easter night. Now, there were a lot of people in the 4th century who were wanting to join the church for reasons other than being Christian. Some would argue because of the legalization of Christianity, and so the process of baptism actually became longer and more difficult. Uh, a view grew up in this time that said that baptism cleanses people from their previous sins, but not the sins after baptism. And so people would wait to get baptized after becoming more mature in holiness. Others would wait simply because they wished not to be forgiven until they were done living like the heathens. Hippolytus in his work, Apostolic Tradition, notes that individuals were to be trained in Christianity prior to baptism, similar to what we've said so far. Uh, for those who were martyred before they had been baptized, they had what people would call a blood baptism. There was also a stress on the necessity of witnesses of a person's conduct before they were baptized, and the children who went through such a process could be baptized as well. Now, Hippolytus made allowances for those who could not speak for themselves, but this is kind of debated about what this actually means. And most professions of faith before baptism included a denouncing of Satan, and again, you have the fasting before baptism that dates back to the DDK. The newly baptized individual would break their fast with their first communion, which usually took place on Easter as well. And those who were willing to break with sins, learn Christian teachings, fast, and prepare would be baptized. That's the summary. It is important to note that while the early church linked all of these things closely together, they did not view baptism as a rite that just grants forgiveness without the intention of the person being baptized. And you see this in their, their very high standards for who would be baptized. Um, all church fathers that spoke on baptism made it clear that those who would go to baptism unrepentant are left unforgiven. Origen noted that if a person is baptized without repentance, he brings a greater condemnation on himself. Uh, Tertullian is one of our earliest sources on baptism, 
And he says that the purposes of baptism are the forgiveness of sins, the deliverance of death, regeneration or the new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Tertullian baptism notes, is it not wonderful too that death should be washed away by bathing? So there was a consensus that baptism meant a great responsibility for those who were baptized. And so again, many adults would willingly wait to be baptized because of this commitment. In terms of infant baptism, Tertullian was concerned that the baptism for infants negated the church's practices found in the second century, that is repentance, prayer, fasting, etc. Um, and he argued that the practice of triple immersion was a long-standing tradition that was not commanded in scripture or handed down from the apostles. While he seemed to have rejected infant baptism, on the grounds of that high responsibility of repentance, fasting, prayer, and Christian conduct after baptism. Um, I'm going to just ruin this man's name, and I'm so sorry. It's Angelo Di Bernardino from We Believe in the Holy and Apostolic Church, Volume 5 of Ancient Christian Doctrine. I'm just going to summarize him on infant baptism here. He says, quote, present research on the baptism of infants has come up to a full stop. It is believed that the practice existed from the apostolic period. However, we have explicit evidence only from the following centuries. Baptism of infants becomes more and more common beginning with the 5th century. An adequate period for preparation for baptism is something that caught hold only slowly, and we find it fully developed only in the 3rd century. And it reached a high point in the 4th century, and then it began to decline because of the spread of infant baptism. A number of reasons pointed to its necessity and influence its development. The numerous heresies... Uh, the conscious decision to break with the pagan world, the weakening initial enthusiasm and apostasy of time of persecution. So essentially, we find the church slowly developed more requirements for baptism as heresies came in to ensure that people were actually committed to the Christian life, which is logical enough, right? We, we kind of set up steps ourselves for that. And whenever those started decreasing, we see an increase in infant baptism. There's this parallel we're not going to go into infant baptism more than that. There's more that could be said on the history of infant baptism. If you want to read a great volume on baptism from a credo Baptist perspective that goes into the history of why infant baptism most likely was not as early as many claim, you can read Believer's Baptism, and it's edited by Schreiner and Wright, I believe. It's an excellent historical analysis, excellent theological analysis. It's fantastic. And there's a, like a 54-page chapter by Stephen Wellam that addresses covenant infant baptism. And Stephen Wellam just, he just writes so well, regardless of whether or not you agree with or disagree with him, just thoroughly enjoy him. So we see that baptism must take place in the name of the Trinity. Water was seen by some as preparing the believer for receiving the Holy Spirit and sealing the believer with the Spirit. Uh, there was a type of baptismal regeneration and it's, it's a type because it's different from what we see elsewhere. Uh, the idea of washing away original sin would be a later discussion to be had with uh, predominantly Augustine. Uh, and Gregory of Nyssa noted that a regeneration that occurs in baptism is not the water that bestows this bounty, but the commandment of God and the intervention of the Spirit which comes sacramentally to give us liberty. He continues that God has commanded the church to baptize and promised that the Spirit would purify those who come to the waters, the waters acts as an outward sign of this purification. It acts as something that can be uh, sensed by the natural man to signify that which cannot be sensed. So essentially, the waters of baptism were not effectual in themselves, but the act of faith of the one being baptized was met with inward purification. So this was the first act of obedience in faith. Essentially, 
that gave the person a sign and a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Well, for Nisa, at least. Cyril of Jerusalem in 350 had a series of lectures to explain Christian beliefs and practice to prepare uh, Christians for the Christian life. And he gave individuals 40 days to cultivate repentance that leads to baptism. Not only that, but baptism, uh, in baptism, one must face West, renounce Satan, and commit to an obedient Christian life. The ceremony was to show a life united to Christ, and Basil uh, took this route, and he said, Faith and baptism are two kindred and inseparable ways of salvation. Faith is perfected by baptism. Baptism is established by faith, and both are completed by the use of the same names. Uh, confession leads the way and brings us to salvation. Baptism follows setting the seal on our ascent. So here, the waters of baptism were to be a place that was the obedience, meeting faith, where the promise of the Holy Spirit would be met. Uh, so this is all to say that baptism, regeneration, cleansing of sins were in a general sense diverse, yet all considered tightly knit in the church so that the church can confess that there is one baptism, uh, one in the name of the triune God that signified the forgiveness of sins. There are so many ins and outs of this discussion that it's difficult to do it justice within this particular setting. But what we, what we can glean from this is a couple things. First, how we understand regeneration can often change how we understand the order of salvation and thus baptism. Um, and I would say that the one who is baptized by the Holy Spirit and living faith, it finds confirmation via their obedience in the ordinance of the water baptism and has indeed received the forgiveness of sins. So I would kind of lean towards what Basil and Nisa would say. And to that, I, I would say that there is much to do about post-baptismal sins. And um, I would disagree with some of the debates that came out of that. But uh, nonetheless, I think that I think there's something to be said about keeping all those things tightly knit, because not only does it maintain the seriousness of baptism, but it places the ordinance in a context where it is necessary because it's the first sign of obedience in a living faith. Uh, one who says they have faith, but does not feel compelled to obey the Lord Jesus to be baptized in the triune Godhead's name is in a concerning position. And so, well, what do we think about the necessity of baptism? Is it necessary? Yes, because Jesus commanded it. Is it necessary to be saved? No, not the water itself, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. But how do we know that we have a living faith? By obedience. That's what we see in and out of Scripture. And so I think that there's a lot of nuance here, really. Um, I think that keeping them tightly knit is something that a lot of evangelicals should go back to. Um, and that's really where I would land on that. So again, the one who is baptized by the Holy Spirit in living faith finds his confirmation in obedience in the water of baptism and indeed has received forgiveness of sins because that's the beauty of faith and repentance. And the baptism signifies the confirmation of that promise. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And I do believe it is one of the first steps of obedience that signifies a living faith. I do not believe that if you're not baptized in water, you are damned. 
But I do believe that one who is not moved to obey Jesus and identifying in his death, burial, and resurrection in the waters of baptism is in a place where they should be concerned about the state of their own faith. Because a genuine and living faith would desire to follow the commandment of Jesus to be baptized and to be united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, because that's a beautiful truth. Of course, um, I would disagree with the historic church's view of the necessity of triple immersion, which some of the Western tradition or most of the Western tradition disagrees with. Um, I disagree with the debates on post-baptismal sins. I can't remember if I already said that. And the other nuanced debates that occurred um, that other traditions in Christendom don't practice either. So there are different points of discussion debates that occur on the nuances of baptism. But I think that we should all be able to say that we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And so if I could summarize with my own personal statement on baptism, baptism is an appeal to God for good conscience. First Peter 321. It's not an effectual bath nor a circumcision of the flesh, but a sign of the circumcision of the heart. Colossians 2, 11 through 12, which signifies the union and identification in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6, 3 through 4. In the union of Christ, having died with him and being raised into new life, there is unity in this baptism. Ephesians 4, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Baptism is not a guarantee for salvation. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 as only those who have had the circumcision of the heart, that is, regeneration, have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. These are Abraham's offspring, the children of promise. We see this in Galatians 3, 27-29, because there is one offspring of Abraham, and that is Christ. And quote, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Galatians 3, 26. And to that all, I will admit a great war within myself before we end up this episode. I oscillate between, I love the way the early church, you learn Christian doctrine, you make sure you know what you're getting into before you get baptized. You count the cost, right? The early church, ensuring that people counted the cost before getting baptized was fantastic. I think that that's a great thing. At the same time, I struggle because you don't see that in scripture. You see people confessing, repenting, and being baptized immediately. It's a very difficult battle within myself. And really, the only way I've been able to deal with it is by remembering that in the time of the New Testament era, people knew what baptism meant. It was used in a lot of contexts, even before the time of John the Baptist. Uh, and so I think that since we have lost the weight of what baptism meant, um, I think there may be a, a time where training people or teaching people the basics before they commit to baptism, having them count the cost, like ensuring that they count the cost before baptism seems smart. And I think that's really what we see with the early church where people were coming in just because they wanted to be part of the Christian church and being baptized and falling away. Uh, and the church thought that was inappropriate. And I think that's significant. So that's it for this episode. We have one more episode of Through Nicaea left. And until then, God bless you all. And have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.
will come back again.